Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the LSE for this evening's event. My name is Fiala Hevert. I am a law professor here at LSE. I'm very happy to welcome you all, and I'm especially pleased uh, to welcome our guest speakers, Ms. Christina Blacklaws, Lord Reed, and Professor Richard Suskin this evening. Now, before we launch into the evening's event, I'm going to introduce you to our head of department, uh, Professor Neve Maloney, who will give, be giving you a few words of welcome. Thanks, Virla. Um, so, distinguished speakers, colleagues, uh, students, and friends, um, welcome everyone to LSE Law this evening and to the wonderful Old Theatre where, where we are right now, which is the site of so many momentous talks and events um, over the history of LSE. So, my name is Neve Maloney, and I'm currently the head of the LSE Law Department. So, it's my great pleasure to welcome you on behalf of the department to this closing event of our centenary year on the theme of code and conduct, the future of the legal professions, a theme of really huge import for us as a law faculty. Now we're now in the final months of our centenary year at LSE Law. Law has been taught at the LSE since the LSE's establishment in 1895, but it was only in 1919 that the director of the LSE, then William Beveridge, confirmed one H.C. Gutteridge as the Castle Chair of Commercial and Industrial Law and as the department's first full professor. And all through this last year, we've been reflecting on what is a very special legacy and special history and on the great LSE law figures that have resounded down through the years. Because for over a century, the LSE law department has pioneered the understanding of law as an integral part of the social sciences. And it's led the way in opening up new fields of legal scholarship, including corporate and commercial law with the great figures of Chorley and Gower, labor law, Wedderburn, family law, Stone, public law, Griffith, De Smith, and Jennings, new methods in international law, Leisurepact and Higgins. And it was in 1972 that the great jurist and LSE law professor Sir Otto Kahn Freund, in a lecture on the legal framework of society, highlighted the development of new legal subjects by the LSE law department that were pushing the foundations of legal understanding. So today, with a faculty of some 60 colleagues or so, and with our wonderful, vibrant, questioning students, this mission of pushing the frontiers of legal understanding is still central to our work. And it's very clearly evident in this evening's theme. Understanding the impact of IT on law and society is currently one of the major themes of the Law Department's research. And it's been advanced by our LSE law speakers here this evening, including through our LSE Law, Society and Technology Group. And in the best tradition of LSE law, our colleagues are working on issues of the most timely significance, from data privacy rights on platforms, to how to approach regulatory design in cyberspace, to the implications of blockchain for financial markets, and many more acutely important topics. So we're hugely fortunate that our three highly distinguished speakers, Lord Reed, Christina Blacklaws, and Professor Richard Suskind, are with us this evening to discuss a topic of such acute and timely relevance as the future of the legal professions in light of these exponential changes in IT and AI. This is the most fitting way for LSE Law, a leading department within the LSE, 
an institution founded to advance understanding of the causes of things and for the betterment of society to conclude our centenary year. So with really renewed thanks and great appreciation to our distinguished speakers, I'll hand you over now to the Chair for the evening, Verla Haymart. Thank you. Thank you very much, Neil. Professor Maloney already pointed out, we have a really stellar lineup of uh, speakers this evening. I'm going to just briefly introduce them all and then tell you a little bit about the sequence of events this evening. Uh, we have Christina Blacklaws. Christina Blacklaws, who is the outgoing president of the UK Law Society, and she was the fifth woman out of 174 presidents uh, to hold that post. She's also a strategic consultant and has established a career both as a solicitor and a mediator. Um, during her tenure as Law Society President um, and as also Chair of the Law Tech Policy Commission, one of her top priorities was coming to grips with legal technology and its impact on the profession. And then we have Professor Richard Susskind, who is a professor at Oxford University and is a world-leading voice on the future of professional legal services and particularly on the way in which IT and the internet are changing the work of lawyers. He's authored a wealth of books and articles on the subject and is also an independent advisor to major professional firms and national governments. And then thirdly, Lord Reed is currently the Deputy President of the UK Supreme Court and he has been elected to take over from Lady Hale as President in the coming year. Uh, before ascending to the loftiest heights of the judicial bench, he has practiced at the Scottish Bar in a wide range of civil cases and also serious, uh, has prosecuted serious criminal uh, cases. Um, and we thank them very much for being with us tonight. And on the home front, we have Dr. Eva Michaeler, who is an associate professor of law here. And Eva is best known for her scholarship on corporate law, and she also is currently conducting pioneering research on the impact and scope of RecTech, uh, uh, for RecTech in corporate governance. Um, between Christina and Lord Reed, we have um, Dr. Orla Linsky, also an associate professor of law, who is a specialist in a wide range of fields, including competition law and EU law, and, but she's also uh, a specialist in data protection, technology regulation, and digital rights. And then last, but by no means lead, we have, at uh, least we have Professor Andrew Murray. Andrew is professor and also the deputy head of uh, the Department of Law. Um, he has a special focus on new media and technology law, and his principal interests are in regulatory design within cyberspace, and also he's particularly keen in exploring the impact of IT and law on issues such as human rights. Um, he's also recently worked as a specialist advisor to the House of Lords Communications Committee inquiry on regulating in a digital world. So these are your speakers uh, for this evening. Um, the evening will be divided in, in three uh, segments. In the first part, we will have uh, presentations by Professor Suskind and Mrs. Blacklaws, um, uh, followed by um, a short commentary uh, by uh, Dr. Michaeler and Dr. Linsky. Um, that's the, the first part of the evening. The second part is a sort of fireside chat 
between Lord Reed and Andrew Murray. It's sort of, uh, so it's kind of a bit sort of the discussion of the, well, currently still the discussion of the deputies, or if it becomes very lively, the jewel of the deputies. <laughs> um, and then uh, we'll also, as you can see here, that's a very action-packed program already, but hopefully we'll also have time for a, a, a vigorous uh, Q&A session uh, afterwards. Um, now, because we have such a tightly packed program for the Q&A, we kindly ask that you just observe a few simple rules, which is, first, when you have the microphone, use it to ask a question, and secondly, please make it succinct. But now, if you do want to share a broader range of observations or comments, or if you want to foreground or already raise questions while discussions are going on, um, Technology is coming to our rescue because this is event is this event is facilitated by the online platform uh, Slido, and I'm just going to illustrate that for a moment here. And I'm going to have Michal come out and explain to you how this works, so that you can already participate in the events while the presentations are going on. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's an honor to be here with you. And warm welcome to all the distinguished speakers. So for tonight's event, we'll be using Slido, which is an online platform for your questions and our answers. So I'd like to kindly ask you to take out your devices. It can be your smartphones, it can be your laptops, anything that can be connected to the internet. And please head to slido.com. I'll give you a second there. If you're visiting LSE, you can use the cloud uh, Wi-Fi. If you're at home here, you can use the Edroam, or you can use your uh, mobile data. And please try to, if you're on this website, put in the hashtag LSE law. It's not case sensitive. Just put in those six letters. And you'll be in the platform we'll be using tonight for submitting questions. Throughout the whole event, you'll be able to submit your questions uh, within this platform. And also, uh, as a brief introduction to the topic of tonight's discussion, we would like to give you a question and pose one to you. So we have a very short poll prepared for you. So I'm just gonna go ahead and activate the poll. So in your screens, you should now see this question, which is how does increasing uh, use of IT in the legal professions make you feel. Uh, and please try to answer. You can submit multiple answers. These are just some kind of suggestions for you. You might feel anxious. You might feel excited. So please do submit a few of them. I'm just going to wait for more people to submit. I have six answers. Well done. So and we have a nice work cloud prepared for you. Okay. Excited to be <laughs> <laughs> So feel free to submit more of them so that our panelists have something to something to work with, really. Wonderful. So that's Slido, and uh, you'll see the two, two tabs. The first one is Q&A, so feel free to be submitting any questions, and uh, our chairperson will get to them. Yes, you can submit questions or also comments or brief observations. And basically, the length is pretty much this is the same length as a tweet that you have. Um, and we also do have uh, for Twitter users in the audience, the hashtag for this event is hashtag LSC Code and Conduct. 
Um, and so feel free to ask questions via Slido or uh, via um, uh, Twitter. But Slido, we will be monitoring and we will be showing the questions and the comments that come up throughout the event when we are not using it for PowerPoint presentations. Um, should also point out as a final point of housekeeping, the event is being recorded and it will be available as a podcast after this evening. Um, so we do encourage you to use your appliances, but do please put them on silent so as not to disrupt the discussion. Um, but for now, I hope that you will join me in, first of all, thanking all our speakers for coming up here and inviting, um, inviting our second and third set of speakers to join us here in the, the front row and welcoming our first speaker, Professor Richard Suskind, for his uh, first presentation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. It's a great pleasure to be involved in these celebrations. There's something particularly nostalgic for me because in 81, 1981, when I was a law student and I first got interested, I was in Glasgow University in the whole field of artificial intelligence and law. The first papers I wrote, uh, read rather, were indeed from uh, London School of Economics, not from the law school, but from a man called Ronald Stamper. So I, I well remember receiving the package through the, the door. And uh, geek that I was, I found this very exciting that papers on artificial intelligence and law. So what I'd like to do this evening with you just for 15 minutes is give you a little sense of, in my view of the, the mindset you should have in thinking about the future uh, of law particularly in relation to technology secondly I want to give you a flavor of the remarkable developments we're seeing in the world of technology thirdly and very briefly say what I think this means for lawyers and fourthly concentrate on something which is very much uh, close to my heart just now for reasons I'll explain the whole area of online courts. As for the mindset you should have, I love the story of Black & Decker who manufacture power drills and apparently when they recruit new executives they take them off on a course, sit them down in the room and put a slide up much like the slide before you and say to the assembled new executives this is what we sell isn't it? And they all say of course that's what we sell, we're Black & Decker. And the trainers with some satisfaction say, that's not what we sell, this is what we sell, because this is what our customers really want. And it's your job to find ever more creative, imaginative, competitive ways of giving our customers what we want. As lawyers, as judges, in the legal community, we have to have a similar mindset. We shouldn't simply assume that the future, particularly in these technologically turbulent times, that the future will just be a more efficient version, a cheaper, lighter, quicker power drill, as it were. We have to think more deeply about the value we bring as lawyers and in the courts and see whether or not, using technology, we might be able to bring that value in different and new ways. And in terms of technology, there's a whole variety of issues that are going through uh, the minds of people who are involved with law tech just now, I wanted to just try and identify a few of the central themes. One is that the underpinning technologies in our world are growing at an exponential rate. The law you need to know about here is not a law of the land, it's Moore's law. Gordon Moore, the man who in 1965 said approximately that every couple of years processing power would double. Most people thought that wouldn't last, but actually We've had 33 doublings since then, and this gives rise, as you will remember, when you double any phenomenon, to this explosive exponential increase in whatever it is that's doubling. And in technology, whether it's processing power, hard disk capacity, memory, bandwidth, we're seeing this remarkable explosion in the underpinning technologies. Best understood by the fable of the tramp and the princess. The tramp saves the princess's life. The king says to the tramp, I'll give you anything in the kingdom by way of reward. The tramp, and it turns out this is a mathematically astute tramp, the tramp says, I'd like a chessboard, and all I'd like is you put one grain of rice in square one, double it in the second square, double it up again in the third, and do so round all the squares 
of the chessboard and all I would like as my reward is all the rice that would accumulate if you keep on doubling. The king, not mathematically astute, thinks he's gotten away lightly and says, I grant you that wish. It's not his to grant because that would require more grains of rice than there are on planet Earth. When you start doubling any phenomenon and keep doubling, it gives rise to remarkable consequences. So that by next year, for example, the average desktop machine will process at the speed of 10 to the 17th calculations per second, which neuroscientists will tell you is about the same processing power as the human brain. Not to say they're artificially intelligent, it's just to say how far we've come in 70 years. But fast forward to 2050, if Moore's law continues, and anyone observing quantum computing believes that it will, by 2050, the average desktop machine will have more processing power than all of humanity combined. This isn't science fiction, this is just the reality of the time into which all of us have been born. A time of greater and more rapid technological progress than humanity has ever witnessed. And we have to think this will affect law. Am I exaggerating? Look at data, what Schmidt, Google's chairman, said not so long ago. Every two days we create as much information as we did from the dawn of civilization up until 2003. By 2021, that'll be every hour we'll be creating that amount of information. For the skeptics, look at this. A good memory card for your camera in 2005, 128 megabytes. 2014, a thousand, more than a thousand-fold increase, 128 gigabytes. Just released a terabyte. That's another over a thousand-fold increase. It's remarkable, this explosive growth. Our systems are also becoming increasingly capable, able to do more and more, taking on so many tasks that we used to think were the preserve of human beings. A lot of this is to do with huge amounts of data that we're gathering. Turns out when you have huge amounts of data with the right software, that data can yield insights, patterns, correlations, can help us make predictions. Look at Lex Machina, developed by Stanford, bought by LexisNexis, is said to be able to predict the outcome of patent disputes more accurately than any patent lawyer. Knows nothing about patent law. It's not working on the full text of judgments. It has about 200,000 records of past cases, who the judge was, the lawyer, the law firm, the party, the size of the claim, the nature of the claim. Turns out that by using computational statistics, you can make more accurate predictions about court behavior in some jurisdictions than by using the legal method. Now, this is a huge challenge, and I can speak at length about this, but just hold that thought, if you will. Also bear in mind that technologies are now developing, even in the area of emotions, systems that can both detect and express human emotions, systems that can look at your face and tell whether or not you're happy, surprised, angry, or disgusted. There's a system now more accurately than any human being can look at a human smile and tell whether or not that smile is fake or genuine. We as human beings are becoming increasingly connected. And it's not just telepresence or video conferencing, it's the idea of social networks, online communities of the recipients of professional advice, patients like me, 600,000 patients, who report not only that they get more comfort from fellow sufferers online, but often more practical guidance too. And this, of course, brings us to the area of AI. I wrote, in the end, my PhD in Oxford in, in the 1980s on AI and law. I spent my whole career thinking about how we can use technology to improve the way we deliver legal and court services. And over the last few years, this has become very much a vogue issue. Even FT are saying AI is going to disrupt the business of law. Here, in my view, are the real headlines. Most of the short-term predictions being made just now hugely overstate the impact of AI and law. We're not going to be transformed within the next couple of years. However, and more importantly, most of the long-term predictions hugely understate the likely impact. By 2030, I think we'll see significant change in the way that legal service and court service is delivered. For me, it defines the 20s as the decade of fundamental change. A little bit of time travel to give you a flavor. I was involved with this first wave of AI. So I finished my PhD, and I was approached in 1986 by a man called Philip Capper, who was the chair of the law school in Oxford and been one of my examiners, and he showed me this extract from the Latent Damage Act 1986. 
Section 2 of this Act shall not apply to an action to which this section applies. Now, English is my first language, and I don't understand this. <laughs> it's fairly typical of a piece of legislation to fundamentally change the law of limitation. And long story short, he said, why don't we use the techniques you developed in your doctorate to develop a system that can answer the question, when is my action time-barred? When can I no longer raise an action because too much time has passed? And we developed a system, and this was the front screen, and I want to assure you in 1988 that was cool. <laughs> This was in the days when floppy disks genuinely were floppy, and this was this is pre-World pre Wide Web. You couldn't go online and use the system. You had to load up from two floppy disks. Imagine it as a huge decision tree. There were over two million paths through this system. It was the first commercially available AI system for lawyers in the world. More than two million paths through it, like a huge flowchart. We modeled and represented Philip's interpretation of the statutes of the, of the case law and we had this very sophisticated flowchart through which non-experts could roam. In the end, Philip will say to this day that the system was better than him. It was rigorous, relentless, always got the right answer, and it reduced research time from hours to minutes. So what didn't we expect at that time? What did we miss? Well, we missed the idea that in the future, we'd move from systems that are programmed, where in this case you explicitly represent knowledge in a system, to systems that learn. This is a huge development in many ways in AI over the last few years in machine learning. Best way I think to understand it is like thinking about how you learn a language. How you learn a language at school, you learn a list of vocabulary, a vocabulary list, you learn the rules of grammar, and you probably speak adequately. That's essentially trying to program yourself to speak a language. The other option is to go to the country in question, and if you hang out there for about six months, it turns out without consciously learning words or knowing any rules of grammar, you can speak quite well. That's like machine learning. You're drawing in from huge amounts of data, which is somehow enabling you to understand and process in a new way. We're doing that with systems now. Many of, very often, we're not programming systems. They're learning from huge amounts of data. That's why there are systems now in medicine that can outperform, in this case, dermatologists in diagnosing melanoma. That's how this system worked that I mentioned that can predict the outcome of patent disputes. But what about judgment, every lawyer says to me? How can a computer system ever exercise judgment? I say that's asking the wrong question. It's a bit like the pole in the wall and the power drill. It's asking a power drill question than a hole in the wall question. A better question is to what problem is judgment the solution? Why do clients come to lawyers in the first place? Very few clients walk into a law office and say, good morning, I'd like some judgment, please. That's not what goes on in the law office. Clients come with problems, and lawyers have judgment. It's a faculty, a facility, an attribute. It's a tool in the tool bag which allows them for certain classes of problem to handle them effectively. But what class of problem? Why is it that people come to lawyers in the first place? One of the answers to this is uncertainty. Clients are in situations they don't know how to categorize or classify them. And sure as anything, don't have the knowledge to apply in the circumstances to resolve the problem. So they ask the question, in your judgment, in your experience, what we should do, what should we do? But the problem isn't really, can a computer system exercise judgment, therefore? We should be thinking, can a computer system handle uncertainty? And the answer to that is, you bet. That's what these systems are amazing at, because they can draw in huge amounts of past data. And we know this from, for example, the way they handle the classic example is Go, a computer system that beat the world champion in Go. We're entering, ladies and gentlemen, into an era of increasingly capable non-thinking machines. That's the second wave of AI, and there's no finishing line. No one in Silicon Valley or South, South Korea is dusting their hands off and saying, job done. The pace of change is accelerating. As into that world, we then have to ask, what's the future of lawyers? I've had many goals at, having it, at answering that question. With my son, I wrote a book more generally, what's the future of the professions, and a book book tomorrow's lawyers charts out what all of this means for the legal profession. It means moving beyond automation of traditional practice to transformation. 
using technology not to make past practices more efficient, but actually to allow us to do things that previously weren't possible. So who are all these people? These are the people who will be designing the systems that will replace our old-fashioned ways of working. These are the people who will be solving clients' legal problems through the use of technology. In my view, and I argue this, many of these people are tomorrow's lawyers. But let me focus finally on online courts. What's the problem I've been trying to resolve here? 46%, only 46% of human beings live under the protection of the law, according to the OECD. In some jurisdictions, staggering backlogs. 100 million people in Brazil, 30 million people in India are waiting for the cases to be resolved. But let's be honest, even in the most advanced court systems, most civil disputes, and I want to focus on civil, cost too much, take too long, the process is unintelligible if you're not a lawyer, and just somehow seem out of step in the digital society. And it's an amazing coincidence that tomorrow my new book's, book's published <laughs> uh, on this subject. It really is tomorrow. So if you buy no other book this week, this year, in fact, this is the one to buy. But I, I ask the question in this book, is a court a service or a place? Do we really need to congregate physically to resolve all our differences? Or somehow does it make more sense, particularly in low-value disputes, to settle them in a new way? In the first generation of these systems, I argue that we can use online judging. The idea here is that judges, for certain kinds of cases, can settle disputes on the papers alone, submitted to them, evidence and arguments submitted to them electronically. They respond electronically for low-value disputes. But we also extend the function of courts. In an era where there's no legal aid in practice available, where people have real difficulty in understanding their entitlements, I believe our court systems should be able to help people understand their legal rights and entitlements, the options available to them, should help them formulate their claims and arguments, and even offer options for alternative dispute resolution, not as an alternative to court, but within the court system. The benefits of all of this, in my view, is we'll greatly increase access to legal guidance and to dispute resolution, and we can do so at a lower cost. For litigants today, where today they frankly have no route to resolution, here's the opportunity to offer genuine access to justice. And even for people who are self-represented or pay for legal service today, I believe that this will be a more convenient, less costly, speedier, more intelligible process, particularly for low-value cases. This is not a pipe dream. We can see examples of this in England and Wales and Canada, in China, Singapore, Australia, and the United States. We're entering a new era, ladies and gentlemen, where the way we deliver court service will change. Judges without courtrooms, justice without lawyers, I know it's all challenging stuff, and there are lots of objections to them. I'm not going to go through them this evening. I just want you to know I do know them, and a quarter of my book, in fact, is devoted to answering questions about does this mean an end to open justice or can it be a fair trial? These are important practical and jurisprudential questions, and I've tried to have a go at answering them. There's a second generation, though, and I've been thinking about this literally since 1981, what about the computer judge? Could a computer ever take on the judicial function? Well, there's three questions there. Can a machine like, work like a judge? Can a machine think, emote, reason like a judge? Absolutely not. Neurophysiologically, neuropsychologically, we're nowhere near that in AI. Can AI even deliver decisions with reasons, which essentially is what judges do? In fact, we're nowhere near that with AI either. But can online courts deliver the outcomes, the hole in the wall that many people want? Because they might not want decisions with reasons. They might, as so much empirical research shows, they might just want an opportunity to express their concern. They might just want to have the dispute behind them. They, they might just want to move on in life, but perhaps not using the apparatus that we're all so comfortable with. And so I put as a, uh, at least a, a hypothesis that in the future we might use prediction machines like Lex Machina. The idea of predictions, machines that give court determinations. Think of Brazil for a second. Their backlog of 100 million cases. With all the will in the world, that is never being, they are never being managed and sorted and resolved by judges 
lawyers in physical courts. So what about this? What about the possibility of saying to parties, actually we have a system that can, on the basis of past decisions within Brazil, make a prediction of the likely outcome in your dispute? Would you be prepared to agree that if the certainty that the system has in the outcome is perhaps, say, 95% or greater, that you accept that as a binding determination of the court? It's not a judicial decision, but it's a binding determination that allows you to move on. It's in a way a form of ADR within the court system. And I talk through this as a possibility. It seems to me, of course, it's not in many respects nearly as good as having a fine judge addressing the complexities of each and individual case. But in systems where for one reason or another, the courts are inaccessible, I can see we may find here some kind of solution to the global access to justice problem. Finally, ladies and gentlemen, I think those of you who are nearing the end of your careers may hope you can hang out, hold on to retirement before any of this engulfs you. But for the rest of you, I'll leave you the quotation from Alan Kay, who is a Silicon Valley chap who once said, the best way to predict the future is to invent it. And that's my message to all the law students here this evening, because you're at a fascinating stage. Almost all law students in the past have emerged from law school and have taken the baton from the people a couple of years ahead and done what they've done. But actually, you happen to be emerging at this time of unprecedented change. And it seems to me that what you'll be doing is not simply practicing law, but you'll be helping design and develop the systems that will replace our old ways of working. And this will be of great benefit, in my view, to those who seek to increase access to justice, both locally and globally. Thank you. Yes, so thank you very much for a wonderful presentation. Um, I'm in a very privileged position tonight because Richard is the leading light on law and technology, and he, as he said himself, he's been the leading light, and he's been working in this area since the 1980s. So let me remind you that the 1980s was the time when the latest technological gadget was a fax machine. And that fax machine replaced the telex machine, which many in this room will not even know existed. So there's a very long career of engagement with the topic. I've had a sneak preview of the book, and what I'm going to say now is a reaction to the book. And the book um, focuses very much on online courts, and in online courts, there are two themes there, really. There's a technological theme, much of which we've heard, and there is a access to justice theme in the book. And I think the two have been combined, as we've seen now, but they've been combined in a way that I think probably can also be unbundled. So the recommendation is technology can be used to increase access to justice. And in particular, the book is written from the perspective of an adversarial system of administering justice. So that is the system prevalent here and in many other common law countries. And there indeed, the problem is that access to justice is difficult to administer because it's very costly. The alternative to that is an inquisitorial system. So that is a system where the judges are more involved in guiding individuals. And the recommendation of the book is technology can be used as not as an automation device, but as a transformation device. And the transformation recommendation is then moving the system more into something that is more inquisitorial. So bringing judges more into case management and also making processes, stopping processes from being continuous. So the idea is that we have now a situation where litigants arrive in person with a bundle of documents in their plastic bag for their one day in court and they feel something's wrong. 
and they're unable to articulate a system that's better managed by judges. And I think that can, of course, be achieved, but I wonder what the sort of the add-on of the technology is. Another piece of advice that emerges from the book is the recommendation that technology should be involved as an advisory function. So you get expert systems that help uh, litigants in person who are the people we care about in this context. And they get online help, helping them to articulate their problem, helping them to organize their documents. Now this can also be done through a court-administered process. So the system where, I from, where I'm from, which is the Austrian legal system, we have since 1895 a system where courts operate office hours, which is basically a judiciary-run legal aid clinic. Um, so these are, this can all be achieved in a sort of analog environment. Now why do I make this point? I make the point to say there is a very significant risk involved in changing over into a new technological environment. So the, the place where I come from is the financial services industry where you have very significant problems with banks and they've got lots of money trying to integrate their computer systems. So it is really hard to find a way of banks having acquired various bits of their organizations in merger activity trying to make them talk together. So it is not seamless, it's a very difficult thing to do. And of course, projects, infrastructure projects of that type, organized for and by the public sector, have in the past often failed and often failed very badly. So I'm interested in how this transition can and should be managed. Um, another point I'd like to make, um, so and I'd like to be very clear, I, am, I, I buy everything about the technology. Um, what I'm concerned about is an unintended consequences scenario and how to manage that from the beginning. So another point I'd like to make is from financial inclusion. So we can see that many people don't have access to bank accounts, and particularly in Africa, a lot of people have access to smartphones, but don't ac can access bank accounts. And that inhibits economic development. So the idea was, let's use distributed ledger technology, and let's use it for financial inclusion. Give people access to digital money. They don't need a bank account, they need digital money. And that worked, except for it became a hunting ground for scams, for fraudsters, who were able to scam money of very vulnerable people, and their money all of a sudden was available through the click of a button on their smartphone. So that's a question, and you, can, you don't need much imagination to see how uh, sort of frivolous entrepreneurs would find ways of scamming people out of their savings through pretending to offer some kind of litigation service connected. Um, and then the final point, because Vail is getting nervous, um, the final point is who are we inviting into this court system? Because who we are inviting may be initially some startup entrepreneurs, but very soon those will be very influential technology providers. And, and I, I, I query to what extent governments, to what extent the judiciary is able to keep the upper hand over the provision of services delivered through these organizations. And that's it. Done. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Richard, I saw you scribbling. Are you itching for a little rebuttal here, or, or can we move on with the next presentation? Can I make a 30-second observation? You make absolutely. And the observation is this, that many, and thank you for the, the, the remarks. My aim 
in this context is not to develop a perfect system. It's somehow it's to remove, as I say, it's someone else's phrase, the manifest injustices that are pervasive in our current system. And so there's no sense in which I'm saying this is the definitive answer to all access to justice problems. But I think online courts will represent an improvement over our current position. They bring their own difficulties. But in a way, a lot of public policymaking is about choosing between different options, not about choosing perfection. It's the old Imperfect Voltaire. alternatives. Yeah, it's the Voltaire thing about the best being the enemy of the good. This doesn't produce the best, but I think it produces something substantially better. And I, I, I just wanted to ask you quickly, and I think you did say this, but... Uh, and it's in the manner of an academic discussion, be all your observations there were negative, can you not at the same time see that there is the, the glimmer here of oh, yeah, something yeah. quite well, exciting? Well, so, all right, okay, well, I'm going to... That was rhetorical. We will definitely, I mean, I'm sure this issue will come up uh, in further discussion as well, but for the time being, I'm going to thank you both very much and invite uh, Ms. Christina Blacklaws and Orla up to the stage. Thank you very much. I'm also I'll take a moment here because we have already had some quite a few really interesting questions coming up here. Um, so please keep sending your questions. And you can also, of course, you can see them uh, online as well. Um, I'm just going to, Michal, can you, show, can you scroll with this? Um, everybody can see, you can all scroll, scroll uh -huh. on the oh, So, so up on the screen, the, okay, the all right. I just, I just want to point out that the very first question I got was, could you reopen the live poll again, please? <laughs> which was, uh, which it should be open, actually. But right now, we are going to go back. Christine, you had the PowerPoint as well. Okay, and I'm going to give you a... Well, thank you very much, Verle, and it's a, a great pleasure to be here to celebrate with you your 100th anniversary. Um, I have to say that there is another significant centenary this year, which is 100 years of women being able to become lawyers. In this time in 1919, um, we were not deemed to be persons within the legislation. Uh, but if you want that lecture, you're going to have to come tomorrow um, to uh, um, Freda, a competitor, the City Law School, where I'm delivering the Lord Up John lecture about that. Um, so delighted, though, I am to be here here, I am not so pleased to have to follow Richard, uh, who not only is one of our uh, preeminent global thinkers in this area, but also a pretty fantastic speaker. So lower your expectations, everybody. Um, it's not my fault. I'm okay. Um, and finally, before I even start, can I take a photo for Twitter? Would that be all right? <laughs> you know what it's like, Victor. Right. Smile, everyone. Thank you. Look, look like more people. But no, that's perfect. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, I'm going to take a. Um, hang on. I'm going to take a. Oh, 
that's a big picture of me. Um, <laughs> I'm going to take a different uh, tack here, and, and I'm going to talk about some of the work that I was very fortunate to be able to spearhead at the Law Society, and, and really the, the rapid growth of artificial intelligence and algorithms across all areas of public and private life has prompted, yes, plenty of debate, but I would say also no little concern. So whilst new technologies can and indeed will revolutionise the way we live our lives, for obvious reason, we have put a lot of focus on the potential dangers posed by a technologically integrated future. So the speed of technological um, innovation and adoption in recent years has posed to us new ethical, legal and societal challenges. And we wanted to look at a few of the relevant questions. So, is artificial, is artificial intelligence a force for good or an unacceptable risk to human rights? Is it right to allow machines to take over judging um, functions which were previously reserved for humans? Do we need to regulate or even to restrict the use of algorithms, particularly when it comes to public institutions? So amidst an often febrile um, atmosphere, we wanted to separate the hype from the reality. So we set up the Technology and Law Policy Commission to examine the use of algorithms in the justice system and to suggest some recommendations to policymakers as to how we should respond to this. I was delighted to have the opportunity to chair the commission. My co-commissioners were a professor of computer science and a professor of ethics. And we chose to focus our inquiry um, on the criminal justice system, because that really is at the bleeding edge here. This is where the risks associated with AI are at their most acute. If we make a mistake there, um, it can lead to disastrous consequences for individuals, undermine their human rights and indeed the rule of law. So we held uh, four public evidence sessions, interviewed over 75 experts and read over 80 written submissions and we received a wide range of input from various disciplines and sectors uh, including computer science, regulation, ethics, human rights and civil liberties. And I wanted to cover just a few of the main findings. Firstly that there is actually a remarkable variety of use of algorithms in our criminal justice system. Um, from police forces, crime labs, courts, lawyers, parole officers, and more. And the way that the algorithms are deployed are also impressively varied. Uh, photographic and video analysis, including facial recognition, DNA profiling, individual risk assessment and prediction, predictive crime, mapping, mobile phone data extraction tools, and data mining and social media intelligence. So across our jurisdiction, across our country, in the criminal justice system, um, police forces are using all of these technologies in different scales, yes, in different applications. And we produced an interactive map for anybody who wants to see this. And if you want to see the report itself, please go onto the Law Society website. Uh, and the, the map 
shows just who, as far as we're aware, and I'll come on to a bit more about that in a minute, but who is using um, algorithmic determination in relation to policing. And one example was Durham's, Durham Constabulary's heart um, assessment risk tool. And it's one, it's an algorithmic model, one of the first actually that was deployed by a UK police force in an operational capacity. And the algorithm assesses the risk of reoffending to inform decisions on whether or not to keep a suspect in custody. And over a two-year trial period, predictions of low risk were accurate 98% of the time, and predictions of high risk accurate 88% of the time. Facial technician, uh, recognition technology has also been deployed uh, across England and Wales. And this technology has been less successful. When it was used in the 2017 <laughs> Notting Hill Carnival, uh, and what it does is to, to map faces against watch lists. Um, it was 98% of the time inaccurate. And when South Wales Police used the system, it had a 91% failure rate. But as Richard is very fond of saying, uh, the technology is the worst it will ever be. So we mustn't throw the baby out with the bathwater. But it is really important that, um, for now, this is not working very well. Um, I wanted to say that there are significant benefits to be gained from the use of algorithms. So automation of, of rote services, form filling, checking, information retrieval, dissemination, all of these things can be significantly, uh, can significantly improve efficiency. Um, and more granular technologies can also augment existing systems, um, as well as facilitating a greater degree of scrutiny of existing processes. So, for example, machine learning can be used to understand how individuals can be provided with rehabilitative services best suited for their circumstances, deliver training courses whilst in detention, and importantly, identify leverage points in criminal networks most likely to disrupt their functioning. Relatedly, algorithms can help to ensure a minimal level of consistency in decision-making across public bodies. Uh, they can also perform monitoring and evaluation procedures, which are often lacking in rigour in our justice system. Secondly, we found that there was, and this is really concerning, a lack of explicit standards and lawful basis for the use of algorithms in the criminal justice system. The stakes are very high in criminal, in, just, in criminal justice and therefore demand really careful assessment of any new systems before deployment. During the course of our study, we became really heavily concerned that some systems and databases operating today, such as facial recognition or some uses of mobile device extraction, do lack that clear and explicit lawful basis. Sometimes it's about opaquely designed algorithms. Um, sometimes it is about secrecy at a development stage or a desire by developers uh, to protect their intellectual property or simply drew, due to the complexity of the algorithm. But this, whatever the reason, this is a very concerning outcome. And thirdly, 
the algorithms are not being critically assessed and are therefore creating real risks to the justice system and to the rule of law. Our research found that while many pieces of technology are in pilot or experimental stage, these technologies are not so novel um, that they can't be critically assessed. In other words, the algorithms can and should be subject to scrutiny. It needs to be led by experts from different teams and should focus on the conformity of algorithms to real challenges and their potential for unintended and undesirable consequences, particularly the possibility that they might prioritise certain goals or values to the detriment of others. So this lack of scrutiny is generating real risks. First of all, to fairness. Um, algorithms encode assumptions and systemic patterns, and this can result in discriminatory outputs. The way that the data, the input data, is, is labelled, is measured and classified is subjective and can embed bias. And training data itself is almost inevitably biased because it reflects society. In criminal justice system, there is no way truly to measure crimes committed in society. Only proxies, such as convictions or perhaps even more problematically, individuals arrested or charged. And these things can be measured. But it, as, as I think it is commonly accepted, that the justice system underserves certain populations and over-polices others, these biases will be reflected in the data. There's also a risk to human rights. Algorithms rely on, on data identifying shared characteristics and patterns to reveal insights. And in doing so, um, an algorithm will naturally categorize individuals into groups without much personal consideration. Machine learning also presents significant risks to privacy. Uh, there are examples of machine learning systems that can infer data or behaviours which would be considered private from seemingly non-sensitive data. And we also discovered risks to the effective delivery of justice and the rule of law. Uh, one of our witnesses, who was the chief constable of uh, Durham Constabulary, noted that human decision makers may lack the confidence or the knowledge to be able to question or override algorithmic recommendations. So what did we say needs to happen? Um, our first recommendation is that we need a whole range of new mechanisms and institutional arrangements to improve the oversight of algorithms that are being used in the, in the justice system. Um, and what we're not suggesting is, is setting up new institutions, but that the uh, capacity uh, and the strength of current institutions should be improved. So, for example, the Information Commissioner's Office um, needs to, to be able to perform a fuller oversight function and it needs to be properly resourced to be able to do that. We need a clear statutory code of practice for algorithms in the justice system under the Data Protection Act. 
And we felt very strongly that we needed a national register of algorithms, which would include data on their characteristics, relevant audits, and the data sets that have been used to train them. And we thought that we should give the Centre for Data Ethics and Innovation a statutory footing. Secondly, we recommended that the, the clarification and the strengthening of protections relating to algorithms. So this could be done through part three of the Data Protection Act and in could include things like mandating the publication of data protection impact assessments and provisions to ensure that there was meaningful, and meaningful is the important word here, human intervention in algorithmic decision making. And looking beyond data protection, um, that existing regulations concerning the fairness and the transparency of activities in the justice system should be strengthened. Um, so, for example, the need to counter discrimination and bias in algorithms, uh, we should perhaps look to formal uh, equality uh, impact assessments, particularly in the public sector. And thirdly, that these uh, Consideration, the consideration must also be given to the procurement of algorithm systems. What's happening at the moment is private companies are selling software to public bodies. So we think that there needs to be a statutory procurement code for algorithms, a review into the policy for mandating human rights, and explanation facilities for algorithms in the criminal justice system so that individuals can, can understand how a decision has been reached about them and assess whether they should seek a remedy through the courts. And fourthly, obviously, this all needs to be legal. And finally, that significant investment is needed to enable and to allow public bodies to develop their own in-house capacities where they need to be able to understand, to scrutinise and to coordinate the appropriate use of algorithms. At the moment they don't have that capacity, that makes them very, very vulnerable and therefore it makes us very vulnerable as a society. Um, these are pretty ambitious recommendations, but we felt very strongly that in the United Kingdom we have a window of opportunity now to become a beacon as a justice system that is trusted to use technology um, with a social license for us to operate it and in line with the values and the human rights which underpin our criminal justice system. We must really take proactive steps now to seize that opportunity. Thank you very much. Thank you, Christina, for this uh, fantastic presentation and also for um, the fantastic report which the Law Society has produced on this topic. I think it's safe to say that it, it presents a very clear mapping of the use of algorithms in the criminal justice system, but also sets out some very ambitious and far-reaching recommendations about how this issue should be dealt with looking into the future. And so anybody who's been looking at the literature around fair and transparent machine learning, I think would be struck by the, 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 the extent of the ambition in the recommendations. What I want to do with my five minutes today is to pick out a couple of themes that emerge from the Law Society report and from Christina's presentation and relate them to some of the work that we're currently doing here in the Law Department. So if we start with that 
um, example of predictive policing, which Christina has already mentioned. So predictive policing, we might broadly say, could be classed in two different categories or camps. So one form of predictive policing is happening at a kind of a systemic level. So this is the mapping, for instance, of crime hotspots, where we try and identify the place where criminal activity might occur or the time when criminal activity might occur. And technology to facilitate that is, for instance, currently being used by Kent Police, um, the PredPol um, technology, so the US technology um, that is being widely deployed in the UK. A second form of um, predictive policing could be more individualized, a form of identification um, system like the HART system that Christina has mentioned. So HART, um, as she has explained, tries to assess the future risk of um, criminal activity in individuals, so the risk of um, future um, offense, offending. And that's used then in order to um, consider whether certain individuals are retained in custody or whether they're, uh, they're looked, their cases are looked at out of court. And so I think what the report does is consider these, these models in a very nuanced way and, and balanced way. So, for instance, the report highlights um, the testimony of one uh, Durham constabulary officer who says that at the moment, without the use of something like HART, there will be a risk of very conservative assessments on the part of police officers where they might in fact overestimate the future risk of criminal activity to the detriment of the individual who is in custody. But as Richard has said, academics are kind of naturally pessimistic or sceptical, so I'm going to focus on some of the challenges that the report identifies. So one key theme that I think emerges is that a lot of the algorithmic systems that um, are deployed in the UK at the, in the moment at the, in the criminal justice system are not simply public sector systems. They're a form of hybrid public-private partnership. And if you look at the way the legal system is set up in order to deal with that, we have a mismatch, I think, between these hybrid systems and, for instance, the data protection framework. So the data protection framework is broken into a general data protection regulation, the GDPR, and then law enforcement provisions. However, if you look at something like the HART um, risk assessment procedure, what you see is that part of the data is collected and processed by the private sector. So HART takes 850 million data points, and it collects so much of this data from, for instance, Experian, the private sector data broker, and that is based on information around child benefits, social media, et cetera, et cetera. So very much public, or privately collected information. And then that privately collected information is input into a system that is then used um, for, for very public purposes, criminal justice purposes. And so the, the legal framework as a result of these kind of two distinct legal regimes is very ill-equipped to deal with those hybrid systems. So what you see from the Law Society then are very clear recommendations about how to proceed here. So one is that the ICO, the Information Commissioner, should provide guidance on how to deal with these hybrid situations, which we currently lack. But I think perhaps more importantly is the, the recommendation that any value-laden um, decision-making system around the design of the criminal justice um, uh, the criminal, in the criminal justice area should simply not be outsourced. So to me, that is an incredibly strong recommendation that, that merits a lot of consideration. So that's, I think, one theme, the public-private duality that we see here. 
A second theme, and this reflects some of the PhD research being done in the law department at the moment, is that data protection is very much um, looking at predictive policing from an individual perspective. So if we look at the protection offered, we as individuals have right to access our data or to challenge automated decision making. Whereas if you think back to the kind of crime hotspot type of predictive policing technology, you'll see that a lot of the issues that that raises are more collective or societal. So it's not about targeting individuals, it's about targeting communities. And so again, I think the Law Society report here kind of reflects this mismatch between the individualized data protection framework as it kind of manifests its protection and then the potential collective harms. So one example is that data protection provides for rights of transparency around how your personal data are processed. And here the Law Society recommendation is that transparency should be not simply vis-a-vis -vis individuals whose personal data are processed, but rather that we should also have public interest access to algorithms on the part of researchers or on the part of journalists so that they can help audit these algorithms in a way that is conducive to, uh, well, to effective oversight in essence. So I think there are two um, big points that emerge from the report. A third and probably final point, and I think this links back to our colleague Andrew Murray's research, is that I think it's quite refreshing, first of all, that the report doesn't look at data protection law as a panacea here. So it encourages us to look at other um, tools in the legal armory, like the equality duty that applies to governments. But also it cautions against the power and function creep that stems from information infrastructures. And so here, in particular, it says that the calculus that underlies um, the kind of assessment of whether or not it is appropriate to put a technology on the market and to use it for criminal justice purposes is something that changes over time and that may change with the advent of more sophisticated technological uses. So we need to keep a constant eye on the rollout of this technology and simply because it was deemed appropriate in the past, that, that finding might not hold into the future. I'm going to add to that that if these systems are in fact regulating individuals, then here you need some sort of consent of the governed. And one query here is, has the consent or the endorsement of the general public been obtained in order to use this type of predictive policing or algorithmic deployment in the, in the criminal justice system? Thank you very much, Orla. Thank you. Um, I'm conscious time is escaping, uh, fleeing away from us a little bit. So without further ado, I am going to uh, segue into the second uh, part of the conversation and invite Lord Reed and Andrew Murray to come up uh, for their discussion. Well, good evening, everyone. I think so far we've had um, <clears throat> two very good and um, thought-provoking talks. So to kind of take us through the next bit, we're going to spend about 15 minutes having a little fireside chat without a fireside. Um, so I, I have some questions for Lord Reid. Um, and very helpfully, the things we discussed beforehand are themes that have been picked up by the speakers. So I want to start by picking up on a theme from both the speakers, but I think it, it came through a little bit more clearly in the initial talk from Professor Suskind, where he said he had a thesis around technology increasing access to justice. And he talked about the Brazilian and the Indian experience. And I thought, wouldn't it be really helpful if we had, let's say, an incredibly senior and experienced judge 
from one of the world's leading jurisdictions who have unmatched knowledge of justice and access to ask them this sort of question. So my first question um, to Lord Reid is, is around that. So this process of digitization and going forward even sort of artificial or machine learning that um, Professor Susskind talked about, it offers us possibly the greatest opportunity to improve or change access to justice since probably at least the introduction of legal aid. Um, it gives us the opportunity to have remote courts, saving travelling time, saving people having to take time off work to attend. As um, Professor Susskind said, you know, is a court um, a place or is it a service? So, in your opinion, um, you know, do you think that the possibility of streamlining the sort of access to courts and the digitization service will open up these new avenues for access to justice? I think, the, I think my answer is, um, is, is yes, subject to a number of caveats. We already have uh, a lot of use of IT in the courts. Um, to, in ways which facilitates access to justice. I mean, for example, um, people on, uh, who want to um, uh, take part in proceedings in, in the court where I work can nowadays um, lodge, submit their materials to us online. And that's how we, we normally get it, and we store it on a, on a, on a cloud server. Um, we provide access to um, to what we do um, using uh, IT um, in a way that's transformed public um, perform transformed the accessibility of what a court actually does um, as, as you'll have seen when we had the, the prorogation case recently um, but when you're when you're talking about access to justice um, I think there, there's some important things to bear in mind one is um, that courts have a different role, I think, in providing um, access to justice from the role of lawyers. Um, people go to lawyers for advice. Um, and as Richard Susskind explained, that's often it's partly because of um, a lack of knowledge it's also because of a lack of certainty inherent in the subject. And the sort of tools that Richard described um, that can assist people in, assist lawyers certainly, in, um, in giving their clients advice um, could be are going to be extremely important. I've, I've no doubt about that. Courts have a rather different role. Um, courts don't just provide a service. They have an important constitutional role in, in a democracy. Now, insofar as they do provide a service, um, the use of, um, of IT can facilitate things in, in, in a number of ways, but there are risks that need to be borne in mind. Um, court services see IT as a way of making more effective use of their resources, particularly by eliminating expenditure on buildings and staff 
in relatively remote, underused areas. Now, that's all very well if, um, if, if it's then replaced with online access to a, a regional center, um, or, or indeed it could be a court anywhere in the world. Um, that's all very well for those who have easy access uh, online. It's not so good, for, I mean, the very places where there's the greatest desire to eliminate courts is also the, tends to be the places where there's the poorest uh, broadband access. And for, um, as Richard made clear, the, the other pressure is to try to get out of the system low-value claims. Now, claims that are of low value aren't, in the first place, always unimportant claims. And secondly, the sort of people who have low value claims um, are liable to be people for whom something which is of low value is nevertheless extremely, um, extremely valuable to them. If you're buying goods or services, um, nobody's going to litigate over a defective kettle, for example, but, uh, or something you buy on eBay. Um, but there are often um, contractual services that are offered to you when you're, uh, for example, if you do buy something um, uh, from eBay or if you're buying um, goods from, um, from, you know, from various outlets, they will offer mediation services or low-cost dispute resolution services, and, and those are all very satisfactory. But if, on the other hand, you are somebody who is, um, say, uh, you have a low-value claim because you were unfairly dismissed, say, um, you may very well need access to um, a human being in the, for, uh, in the form of a judge in order to be able to, um, to, to exp in, in order to be able to, for, for your, the nature of what your case is to be effectively identified. If, if, you, if people are faced with drop-down menus, for example, with pre-populated fields, the sort of people who most um, need the assistance of a judge are the sort of people who are going to have the most trouble filling in these, these sorts of forms. Um, so I, I have an anxiety about an over-enthusiasm for, um, for that way of going about things. But the more, the more fundamental point about, and the most fundamental point is this, that there's a big difference between getting advice from a lawyer, which is, if you like, the, the analogy of, um, of going to Black & Decker to buy your power tool, and getting a judicial decision. Um, a court is a, is a place that's open to the public. Everything that's done there is done in public. And it's where the state and the citizen, it's one of the places where the state and the citizen interact and your rights and your obligations are authoritatively decided. Now, that shouldn't, I think, as a matter of principle, be being done um, in an online inter interaction um, between um, some sort of computerized court and the individual. For example, I can give you a practical example. I, I used to be a commercial judge, and we didn't have a great deal of press interest in the cases in front of us. 
But if you had, for example, a football club that was in financial trouble and it was going into administration, say, then suddenly the court would be full of journalists. And it brought home to you, and of course, it, uh, you know, there's a small specialized press for the more arcane cases, but it brought home to you that even in a technical area of the law, like corporate insolvency, there can be a very lively public interest. Now, we had, when I was uh, a, a judge at the level below the one I'm at at the moment, we had a case to do with um, a commercial court being operated at the next level down, um, where the judge was very go-ahead, and he had decided to do a lot of things using telephone conferencing. So, because it's more efficient. The lawyers don't have to come to court. Um, you all just sit by your phone and you have a hearing. And we had to say, this won't do. Um, you're, you're not um, simply providing a service to the individuals who want their case heard. You're performing a constitutional role as somebody administering justice in a democracy. And what you do ought in principle to be open to the public. And so you can't just do it in a phone call. Um, you, can have, you can have IT systems of doing it. We, for example, in, when I sit in the Privy Council, we have appeals from the Caribbean, for example. And we don't expect people to come from, to fly from the Caribbean to address us we'll sit at a time that's convenient for people there, the time zone, and we can do it using uh, video uh, links, um, effectively dependent on Skype. Um, that's, a way, that's another way of example of using um, IT in a way that improves access to justice. But it's done in, in an open courtroom, and people can come in and sit and watch what's going on. So. It's, it's important not to lose that dimension of, of the court because it's a vital, it's one of the most vital institutions of a democracy. And so it shouldn't be done simply um, as a private transaction clicking on a, clicking on a, um, a button on the screen. I think that's, that's a really helpful and interesting spin to put on the role of the court and its sort of constitutional or public role. And, and building on that, actually, something else that was, that was in both the speakers' um, talks. You, you heard it when um, Professor Suskin talks about the, the Lex Machina system, and we also heard it when uh, Mrs. Blacklaws was talking about the, the importance of managing procurement of systems, is that more and more of our legal data is now being locked up in databases uh, like LexisNexis system and the Westlaw system and others. Now, when I was an undergraduate, I used a thing called a library, um, which, um, which had in it something called books. Uh, and, and the wonderful thing about the, the, the book and the library is, is it was completely, if you will, to use a, a sort of technical term, open source. Um, so is there a risk that, you know, all, all this knowledge that we've built up, the skills that we as lawyers have, our tools, are now becoming in the control of these private businesses who then design systems or algorithms to search for data and then give you returns based on the keywords you put in, therefore in essence turning our understanding of law as being something about language into something almost code-like. Is, is that something that you see? Um, well, there are, there are, there are various 
There are various ways in which IT has affected legal research that we might, we might come back, like talk about um, later. But I think if we're talking about, if you like, um, law as data and law as the activity that I do every day, um, I, I suppose there are a couple of points I would make. One is, obviously, IT is enormously valuable in, um, in keeping con being able to make effective use of all the data that there is. Um, you know, uh, I mean, a library um, takes a lot of skill to get to know and to use effectively. And um, I, I mean, I, obviously, I've been doing that all, um, all my adult life. And I, f I find um, Westlaw, LexisNexis enormously valuable as research tools. There's, there's, there's no doubt about that. Um, but um, on the other hand, you have to understand the, what their limitations are. They're essentially, they're static. They're, they're looking at uh, a, a data, sets of databases and performing work on them as an existing collection of data. Now, law as an activity is creative and dynamic. Um, most of the law that I learned when I was a student is, um, is no longer the law. <laughs> so what, you, what, in, what in fact you're learning that's useful are skills, and you, including skills to do with research, but skills in thinking about the law, um, which for, for somebody um, in my position, um, and I, well, I say that, it's actually been my whole career because it's the same, frankly, if you're, if you're a junior barrister or even if you're advising clients. If, you, if your mental outlook is, um, if I've got a contract problem, I look at Chitty and I see what Chitty says in paragraph so-and-so, that's the answer, and that's how, what I'll advise my client. Well, that's all very well if, um, if, the, if what Chitty says is favorable to your client. But if it, if it isn't, and there's enough at stake to make the point worth arguing, the whole essence of a lawyer's trade is to try to work out why what the book says is wrong. Mm -hmm. And you go to the authorities that are cited, and you, you try to work out an argument that the authorities, um, insofar as they actually support what Chitty says, um, are no longer authoritative for one reason or another or don't cover the case that you're, that you're having to deal with. So, and, and then you try to persuade the judge. In extremis, you try to persuade him that it's time for the law to change. And obviously the law does change all the time. So it's a, it's a dynamic process, uh, the law, and treating it as data is never going to capture that. So, it, I mean, it's a valuable I mean, and Richard will tell me that computers are past us and they were able to, <laughs> the, the day of a creative computer is, is coming. Um, but as matters stand, um, I, I would just point out that that's a limitation. And also, there are, it isn't just a matter of creativity. Um, obviously, you have, reasoning is integral to, to doing law. And so is the sense of humanity. Um, so 
Reasoning, creativity, humanity are three aspects of law as an activity, which I'm, um, I don't see machines being able to replicate anytime soon. So you just have to be aware of this, that, that you haven't, it, when you've looked up Westlaw and done all the research, that's not job done. You know, job done is then thinking about that data and how to, um, how to support your client's case. I think I'm, I'm aware of time and yeah. we're about to run out of time. I'm going to ask you just, I, I think you've answered this, but I just want to get a clear answer from you. One last question. At any point in the future, could a robot be a judge of the Supreme Court of the United <laughs> Kingdom? Well, provided we have um, <laughs> diversity amongst the robots. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, joke, joking apart, um, uh, the law exists for human beings, and it, it, has to, it has to be suitable for human beings. And I suspect that for the foreseeable future, the best judges of what suits human beings are going to be other human beings. Okay, thank you very much to Lord Reed. Can we thank him for his success? Thank you indeed. It was this, our program was so full and, full and the discussions were so interesting that it would have been a shame to cut them short, so we have not. What I'm going to do now is make a little executive uh, decision, which is I'm going to first check with all the speakers whether they uh, need to run off or whether they are all right to overrun a little bit. Okay, that's, that's great. So we have the speakers on board. Um, those of you who have a train to catch, um, I would invite you to just to go now. The others, we will continue the conversation for another 20 minutes at least so that the audience can also participate and we have some time for Q&A. And while you're making uh, that decision, I and warmly invite you to stay, of course. Um, I will be inviting the um, speakers back up to the panel, to the podium. Right, thank you. What, that's wonderful. That's, it's great to see that so many people can still be with us. Um, now, Vosso, you've had sent in lots of very interesting questions throughout all these presentations. I do think, like, for example, what are the aspects of the legal profession that AI can never replace? There has been, we have had a beautiful discussion on that just now with Lord Reed and uh, Andrew Murray. Um, but the next one, and we had 14 thumbs up for this question, so a lot of people are interested in this. Um, I would like to just kick off, and then we're going to turn also over to the, the real life human beings here. Um, but I would like to uh, um, hi highlight this question and uh, start a conversation off with this. So a common maxim of machine learning is garbage in, garbage out. So past courts and judges have historically embedded injustice in their decisions. How can we teach AI justice when their data set is unjust? Um, I have to, given the, the topic, uh, maybe first a, a comment from uh, Lord Reed, and then we'll open it up to <laughs> Well, um, that's a terrific question. <laughs> um, well, I was trying to think about an answer. Um, obviously, if, 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 if you had a complete set of law reports, you would find a, a lot of unjust decisions in there. <coughs> Systems like Westlaw um, try to give you guidance as to the current status of decisions and whether they're compatible with later decisions or not and uh, what, their part, what their history has been. 
that, that's a help. Um, but for the, for the rest, um, I think I would see this as relating to the point I, I made earlier a few minutes ago about law as an activity being essentially critical um, rather than uncritical of what's in the data. Um, now, I know how I, as a judge, go about um, adopting a critical approach to data. Um, I can't, I'm not qualified, I think, to say how you would teach a machine to do that. I'm going to be more critical of the question because there's so many things wrong with it, actually. <laughs> uh, it's not a common maxim of machine learning that garbage in, garbage out. In fact, quite the contrary, that's a common maxim referring to the first wave of AI, yeah. which is to do with express rule-based systems. So it's completely to misunderstand machine learning to talk about garbage in, garbage out insofar as the programming is concerned. The assertion that past courts and judges have historically embedded injustice in their decision is an empirical claim, but I don't think if we look to the full suite of English law reports, that was what we would come out with. We may identify some bias and some injustice, but I'm personally not of the view that it's strikingly a collection of strikingly unjust decisions. So I question uh, the, the first two sentences. How can we teach <laughs> AI justice when their data set is unjust? Again, that's not really to, uh, I'm sorry to be critical, but if we're, and I'm going to be firm in my position in all of this, because we've really got to lift the level of debate here, folks. We've got to be rigorous about this. But how can we teach AI justice when their data set is unjust? I disagree the data set is unjust, but we don't teach AI anything. We're talking about the reverse, that what AI is providing us the facility for it to learn from past bodies of data. And so I struggle to know what the question means. Um, may, after I've uh, dissected in this way, I suspect the person who wrote it may not be wanting to go public on this, but I, I, it's, a, it's almost a meaningless question, I'm afraid. And I, I'm just being honest because I think we, we really do need to have rigorous discussions about AI, and we cannot really be reducing it to science fiction. Of course there's bias embedded in judicial decisions, but to suggest they're pervasively unjust, I think, is sweeping, and to suggest we have to teach AI, um, I don't think it's a question of teaching AI, it's how can we audit, and in fact, Christina's views on this would be interesting, how can we audit large bodies of data, and how can we ensure the algorithms that we deploy because software engineers are now, in the language of one of my son's social engineers, how can we ensure that they're not biased? But actually, that's a far cry from teaching AI justice. I think Christine also wants to come in on this. Um, so Christina's I'll, nicer I'll, than me, so she'll be there. I'm not, <laughs> <laughs> no, not, not, not at all. Um, but I, I'll take out of the question what I, what I think is interesting. Uh, and I would say that we are, I think, at a, a very important time where um, if we don't get this right, and so, uh, I'll explain what this is, um, then we can, we could sort of sleepwalk into some dystopian nightmare where all of the biases and all the prejudices that, that we have in society can be hardwired into future decision making. Um, on the other side of that, if we do get this right, then 
actually we can make great leaps forward, I, I hope, societally. Um, and what, what is this? Um, it, it's two things. It's uh, how algorithms are programmed. And, and of course, as Richard said, um, we, every single one of us carries around a set of biases. And we are, quite frankly, dangerous if we're making important decisions, if we're unaware of those biases. Um, so, so who is programming and how they are programming the algorithm? That's a, that's a key issue to try and reduce the impact of bias in future use of algorithms for decision making. And, and the second part of that is the, is the data sets that the algorithms are trained on. And I think that's probably more what, what uh, the question was, was pointing to. So, so all of the training data sets that we have, as I said in my presentation, and I say this boldly, are biased. Uh, because they reflect the, 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 the situation that we find ourselves in society at, at this time. Um, the really challenging, interesting question is, without moving into uh, territory of complete social um, control, which I think is a very dangerous place to be, but to what extent can we um, remove bias from data sets? <coughs> Now, you know, I don't have any ready or easy answers to that, um, but clever computer programmers probably could have a better stab at it than I. I've got to add that something that strikes me is that law is the product of debate. Um, if you read a judgment in uh, the appeal cases, for example, you'll get um, arguments put up by the legal teams on both sides which are very reasonable, strong arguments. You know, cases where there isn't a reasonable argument on both sides don't, don't get to the Court of Appeal or the um, Supreme Court. And so you're, you're, I mean, I may be looking at th things in a too old-fashioned way, but I see um, the judicial decisions as a product of a dialectical process. And um, with, on each side... Lawyer, highly trained lawyers arguing very strongly for opposing visions of how the law should develop. And um, I find it difficult to imagine how, um, how, you, would, how you would replicate that process um, in terms of machine learning. I think Richard wants to come back on this. Can I respond? Certainly of the systems I'm discussing, I'm not anticipating upper court decisions being taken either by human judges working online nor by AI systems. I'm thinking of the many millions of cases which don't raise difficult questions of yeah. law yeah. or evidence. So I, absolutely, I, I, I stress throughout my book, and you're absolutely right to pick out some low-value cases raise personally significant issues, something I also deal with. Uh, but there are huge numbers of cases, and speaking to lower court judges, who say they, they, don't, they shouldn't really be coming before them, and there'll be easier and better ways of disposing of them. And remember, also, I'm talking about human judges making decisions, but perhaps not making them on the basis of over oral evidence on the basis of arguments uh, put to them. Um, I, I think a second point is that, um, and it's a different point, is... I think in advanced AI, we're not thinking of replicating how it is that human judges come to decisions because we don't really know 
Mm. Certainly, psychologically, mm. uh, we often don't know how it is that people come to decisions. But if you think of self-driving cars, for example, no one's suggesting that the best way to develop a self-driving car is to put a robot in a, hu in a normal car and copy the way a human mm. being drives. Similarly, I'm not suggesting if we're trying to develop systems that deliver the social and practical outcomes in lower courts that people want, I don't think we should be trying, for example, to copy the reasoning and the thinking processes. I think we might have other ways of doing it. So I wouldn't want it to be thought, certainly in this first phase of my thinking of online courts, that I'm thinking of taking on, in the jurisprudential uh, language, hard cases. I think it's about mm. clear cases. And there's a whole discussion in my book about this. But mm. the, the, for those of you who are interested in the subject, one of the very interesting questions is that the question of whether or not a case is clear or hard is not itself a clear question. That's it. And I've, I, I agonized yeah. over that when I wrote my PhD and had an answer, which I thought was a great answer, and no one ever paid any attention to it, <laughs> except perhaps my late mother. But, um, uh, but actually, in, my, in the book, I've come up with a thought that would be fascinating, and someone should do research in this, um, to see if there's characteristics of hard cases that we don't find in clear cases that are not the ones we identify as lawyers. Because this is what uh, machine learning can do. It can identify patterns and trends and correlations that we've never seen. So I can conceive of a system that could actually, in some sense, process the facts of the case and determine whether or not it's a clear case or a hard case, but not by using the legal method. And that would be a fascinating area of research. And we're seeing the same in, in, in medicine when you see the way that some of these medical systems, the, the dermatological system doesn't know anything about histopathology or dermatology, but it can actually come up with amazing diagnostics. So the amazing challenge to all of us is, I wonder if some legal issues might be settled using method that's not the legal method. Yes. You'd have to be historically aware because... A hard case may be an easy case until exactly. yes. society moves on yes, indeed. and, it, and yeah. it gradually becomes a harder yes. case. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, if it's all right, we're going to actually sort of like go back to the old-fashioned style for a moment and see if there are questions among the audience. Yes, all right, there's a firm hand over there, so if you just, and if you could just, just give your name and your affiliation and then ask you, remember your succinct question. <laughs> Thank you. So my name is Saif Shah, and I'm a sixth form student in North London. And first, thank you. Welcome. For, yes, welcome. indeed. Yes. And first, just thank you for all coming and delivering such a great lecture to all of us. My question is that a large portion of the debate so far has been on the possible effects of IT on the judiciary, but could there not be more devastating effects on the adversarial system and the need for barristers to prevent the facts and legal arguments when perhaps AI can efficiently do so? whereas we need human judgment where judges actually deliver judgments in cases. Thank you. All right. Shall, Christina, would you like to? Yeah, so it's a really interesting question. Um, and uh, you know, Richard's written hundreds of pages about this <laughs> uh, in, in several books about, about the future of, of lawyers. Um, and, um, and I think... There are, there are some real challenges. I'll talk from, about my own profession, the solicitor's profession. So at the moment, what we sell is what's, what's in here from 
20, 30, 40 years of, of legal practice. And, and that's what, as Richard said before, it's, in a sense, that's what people are buying, is that, that knowledge which is based on, on real-life experience and the ability to then um, look at a particular case and apply your knowledge to that case. Um, however, we can imagine in the not-too-distant future um, advice being given on a very different data stack, if, if you like, um, so, so being given on um, the analysis of not just my 20-odd years of experience, but um, the analysis of, uh, of all of the cases that are relevant across all of, all of you know, in different jurisdictions, etc. So, so a very different database um, for, for the advice giving. And, and that changes the nature of um, the, the added value that you can bring as, as a lawyer. So if, if that is the, the near future position, then what do I add to my client? Well, it needs to be much more about things like um, my ability to, to communicate, so my emotional intelligence will, will be a really important factor. My ability to, to engage and to support the client through a decision-making process, as opposed to knowledge of black-letter law or even my own in experience as a solicitor. So, um, so I think we're in to interesting times in, in terms of what the legal profession can add in terms of value to, to clients. In relation to court process, um, again, it's, it's about reimagining uh, what, what, what do clients, what do people want from court? And um, I don't know, I think it's about 60 million cases, isn't it, that eBay resolves every year um, without the intervention of any human beings, largely, um, and to the satisfaction of the, the users. So, so we can, we can, we already have examples where, um, where people are having their disputes resolved very effectively at low or no cost um, without the engagement of lawyers.